Virtual economies are all around us, from social media to Bitcoin to the games on our smartphones. But what are they and what can they teach us about the real world? I'm Alex Bird and I've returned to the Oxford Internet Institute to speak to Vili Lelonverta, a research fellow at the Institute and an expert in the subject. He's recently written one of the first books to explore the subject in detail called Virtual Economies, Design and Analysis. He began by explaining how the book first came about at a games developers conference in San Francisco. I've been going every year since the past, I don't know, five years to give a talk there about what the academic study of virtual economies can teach game developers and digital developers. 2010, I was there in a panel about virtual economies in online games. It was a panel where all the, the panelists were academics and then game developers were sort of quizzing us, right? And one of the questions was, well, well, what should I read if I want to make use of economics and, and economic sociology to build be better games and better virtual economic systems? And you know, what should I read? I should just pick up an economics textbook. And co-author, who was also on that panel, Edward Castronova, we, we thought, well, you know, if you pick up an economic textbook, economics textbook, in theory, you know, everything, the theory is the same, but in practice, it's going to give you the wrong advice because it focuses on very different objectives. That's when we decided that, all right, we'll write the textbook for you <laughs> on, on how to do this. And then we obviously wanted to also make sure that it's interesting to academics. So it's a slightly broader book than just a, a, a book for developers. So you said you were looking to write it for game developers who didn't really know economics, but also have something in there for academics That's who want right. to know more about games. Exactly, yeah. So it has these two audiences. One of the audience is game developers and digital developers more broadly. So not just games, but anyone who's developing online communities or uh, shared information pools, crowdsourcing systems or a new virtual currency. Uh, that's, so that's one of the audiences. And then the other audience is academics, social scientists and scholars of media and communication uh, who are interested in uh, behavior and power in digital media. Because basically we're arguing to scholars that if you want to understand how digital media shape behavior and whose power do they enhance, what kind of what kind of behaviors and activities are valued and privileged, and what kind of constraints and sort of budgets are imposed on use, then you really have to take this economic perspective to digital media as well. You can't just treat it as, as communication, as speech, as abundant bits uh, that are only uh, restricted by creativity. There's also these very concrete constraints constraints and choices and ownership and exclusivity that's really programmed into the infrastructure of digital media today. Everything from social media to, to the numerous games that people play every day. And those are understanding though that is crucial for I think for any scholar of digital media today. Looking at social media specifically, it's about putting being able to put some kind of economic value on the interaction users have with content publishers. So what value someone clicking like or someone clicking retweet has 
it's that, but it goes beyond um, just economic value because microeconomics fundamentally it's a science of choice, uh, choice under constraint. So we we're kind of used to thinking, um, and most of internet scholarship is about how suddenly scarcity disappears and there's abundance. You can you don't have to choose which um, music file you want because you can download both and you can also share them to your friends. There are no constraints. You don't need to make any choices. But then it turns out that actually there are many things that are not infinitely copyable in digital media. So if you think about social media, there's people's attention, of course, but then there's also very crucially um, artificial scarcity is built into these systems in the form of likes or upvotes or followers um, and so on. And it's in fact this scarcity, this, this fact that you do have to make choices to how you allocate your um, likes and you can't just give everyone a, a 9 billion likes. That's actually the, uh, crucial to their functioning. And um, because it involves making choices under constraint and it involves um, give and take it involves uh, trade even if not in the sort of sense of dollars changing hands um, it actually turns out that an economic perspective and an economic sociological perspective a market perspective is very useful in understanding these dynamics I see you said it was originally this book came about through working with game developers or speaking with game developers. That's right. Um, are there any particular examples within uh, games that serve as particularly good examples of virtual economies? Well, there's so many different types of virtual economies. Once you, So if you just take this basic premise that a virtual economy is an economy founded on virtual goods, and virtual goods are digital resources that are artificially scarce, so they're not infinitely copyable, then this is such a broad definition, of course, that you can you can find many kinds of um, systems that fit under this. Um, and so there isn't a single game that's, uh, you know, emblematic of everything. But obviously, if, uh, if you want to take an economy that's in intriguing because of its complexity and because of the array of different uh, fascinating emergent economic behavior that you can see in it, then um, EVE Online, um, an online game uh, set in a sci-fi universe where players um, engage in uh, space travel and trade and manufacturing and war, is a very good example. And uh, we've used EVE Online and data economic data from EVE Online a lot in this book to illustrate concepts and and, and these kind of emergent economic behaviours. EVE Online, which you mentioned, has made mainstream news in recent years due to its sophistication and its ability to provide a platform for political and economic disasters on a huge scale, including financial collapses that mirror our own. Good that you brought that up because actually one thing we talk quite a lot about in this book, we have a couple of chapters really on um, institutions and politics in games but um, on in online systems more generally so 
we are not um, uh, sort of only looking at markets, but we're also looking at non-market allocation of resources, which is um, a part of uh, the economy. Even if microeconomics often often focuses on uh, just markets as a means of resource allocation, we take a wider perspective. So we also look at politics and alliances and we look at law and we look at the construction of markets um, through uh, that that is, that is underpinned by things like rules and law and 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 and, and reputation and trust um, and so the uh, case that you just described in eve online there are numerous examples in eve online and in in other games that really um, serve as uh, fascinating illustrations of how this kind of self-organized institutions can emerge in uh, online communities and how the trust and the rules that the institutional rules that are developed in them can facilitate really complex forms of collaboration and resource sharing and resource production but then how also obviously the the most fascinating stories are when they break down <laughs> when when something happens there someone takes advantage of the uh, uh, position that they've reached and is able to exploit a vulnerable party and those are that's sort of something that eve online the game um, excels in in sort of producing situations where that's possible and then that leads to really um uh, massive drama and massive space opera but you can see it in a less dramatic way playing out also on um, social media on wikipedia on quora uh, where there are also um, complex um, self-organized institutions emerging and rules emerging which facilitate collaboration exchange and production um, and the way they're maintained and the way they break down. There are some similarities there. So maybe um, I would like to claim that even though most of the examples on the book come from games, it's, it's, you could almost say that it's only because games provide the most sort of extreme examples because they tend to be... Um, uh, games tend to be um, sort of very, um, what's the word? Um, well, confrontational. Yes, but but they're kind of clear. Um, they are. They make a very clear break between the the virtual community or economy and um, uh, the kind of the surrounding context. So you get to see many of these phenomena in sort of isolation. Whereas in other online systems, perhaps they're more mixed up with dynamics um, uh, of the context. It's kind of harder to, to see them, but the same dynamics are there nevertheless. Would it be, like you said, it's such a vast uh, topic, but would it be fair to say that in the world of games, the economies have developed beyond what the developers had in mind for them because of the role of players and how they've taken it on themselves? For instance, with World of Warcraft, you mentioned the idea of power leveling, power leveling, employing people to play as your character, which cannot have been envisaged by the developers, by Blizzard all those years ago. Right. So, well, this gets to what I said about different types of virtual economies that all fit within this kind of abstract definition. So 
um, a lot of very fascinating uh, stuff and, and fascinating uh, stories can be found from these massively multiplayer online role-playing games like you just mentioned World of Warcraft and then we've been discussing EVE Online and in those yes I mean one of the even one of the design goals in EVE Online is to be able is um, to provide a context where all kinds of unexpected uh, emergent organizing and and market making and behaviors can emerge um, and um, and then what you mentioned this this the, the, the one very big phenomenon that has happened is that people have started to create markets where um, items and currencies from online games can be traded for real money right which is a, a big sort of attention catching part of this whole phenomenon that's that's being in the media a lot and that that continues to happen and i i'm currently studying a, a big marketplace where these transactions happen and people continue to increasingly to uh, pay money to um, hire someone to play for them when they're too busy themselves or a new phenomena that didn't exist um, uh, when World of Warcraft uh, sort of first came out was that people are actually um, hiring friends to play with so you have these very competitive online games today which are team based um, but and, and if you want to um, do well in them if your sort of self-identity is based on being a very high-level player on, in them, you might find that your kind of volunteer friends are not committed enough to get you to where you want to be. So what you do is you pay um, a few East Asian extremely skilled players to be your team members um, and then uh, use your sort of the, 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 the coach or the team leader. And then you do well. So there's a market for so so these virtual economies have created a market for for oh, this kind of virtual work and, and and virtual goods that are traded for real money. But these kind of emergent markets and emergent behaviors they're a feature of one type of virtual economy. This very open-ended, very um, um, usually very kind of complex MMORPG economy. But at the same time, we have a huge uh, growth in these much more sort of controlled and managed virtual economies that you find in mobile games and, and tablet games, which, which are mostly one-player experiences. So even though the game might be multiplayer, you don't really have um, much economic interaction between the players. And those are designed with completely different goals in mind. They are designed to be um, sort of very orchestrated experiences, right, where the user is provided with the um, uh, sort of correct stimuli with the correct timing to optimize the gameplay experience and then eventually get them to uh, pay a little bit of real money as a microtransaction in order to get over some hurdle or kind of get to the next stage and that's a that fits within the same definition but but um, and and it has the same it's founded on the same idea of artificially scarce uh, digital resources, aka uh, virtual goods, um, but um, it looks like a very different economy. So, with the mobile games, it's more of the player interacting with the developer and That's seeking right. to purchase an advantage over the game, whereas the, the previous type we talked about is more player interacting with other players. That's right. For goods. Yes. So, these you could say that these are two archetypes but then you have a lot of crossover and I think in mobile 
um, as the platforms and, and devices also develop so that it becomes easier to interact um, with other players. You will see more and more this kind of uh, player-to-player economic experiences also appear in mobile. Do the more advanced uh, virtual economies offer any kind of practical use or uh, any can they teach us anything about what we can bring into more real-world economies? Well, I think there are a lot of, of learnings that you can take, and we have one chapter about them. But one that I would highlight is simply the idea that virtual economies are designed with certain goals in mind that uh, vary from uh, the economy economy to economy and usually the goals are more more varied than simply um, economic efficiency and the allocation of resources in the most effective way very often uh, perhaps most often in games the purpose of the economy is to act as a social glue to provide um, opportunities for people to collaborate and interact build trust build mutual dependence um, and that way strengthen the community and increase social capital and um, whilst at the same time providing means for the allocation of resources but um, often often in national sort of economic policy discourses um, the the concern is primary primarily with economic efficiency with the increase of production and with the efficiency of allocation with little heed paid to how the um, economic institutions and types of markets that um, best achieve these efficiency goals might um, affect society, social capital and communities. And so you have situations where a market is extremely efficient, but it at the same time um, ends up basically alienating its participants and, and kind of uh, destroying the local community. And so what you could learn from virtual economies is to take a little bit broader view and look at what kind of markets and what kind of exchange mechanisms could possibly serve both types of goals at the same time. And what's, what's particularly interesting about games is that they're really like uh, uh, research laboratories for this. And, and game developers are in some ways like experimental uh, <laughs> macroeconomists, very sort of funky and creative ones. And they create all these designs and try them out with the goal of creating um, uh, online communities that are not only uh, functional but also kind of, of, of uh, have high social capital and are sticky and, and um, make people stay and so on. So I think that, that, that you can really look at what, what people are doing in practice in these, uh, what these designers are doing in practice and take learnings from that rather than just sort of take the abstract theoretical point which I just made that you need to be mindful of other goals besides just economic efficiency when you do both. People understand that, but then, you know, how do you do that in practice? Well, I'm saying perhaps we could learn something from games there. Whether games economies are more about 
keeping players coming back and so they're, right. and so they're more user focused. So if you think about the so-called economic problem, how to provide uh, members of society with uh, subsistence, how to provide them with, with food, shelter and everything else they need to, to prolong their materi- material existence. Games are not um, concerned with this uh, economic problem so much because you can infinitely reproduce any um, virtual resource and immediately satisfy any such uh, economic uh, problems that the players might uh, suffer from. Instead, then, game developers focus on these other problems that um, a sort of community might have. Whereas national policymakers, they might focus, they might do the opposite. They might focus on the um, solving of the economic problem. But Keynes predicted already 90 years ago that the economic problem, how do we feed everyone, will be solved um, by around this time. And while that's certainly not true for everyone or even most people in the world, it has been argued quite persuasively that for many people in our rich countries and developed economies, um, the economic problem has been solved. And actually, what the functions that our economy now performs have more to do with um, uh, with um, sort of um, relaying meaning and building meaning um, and and um, uh, structuring social relations. So this kind of soft purposes rather than solving the economic problem. So you could say that we are actually living in a virtual economy. Uh, many of us are here in the UK as well, that, that the economy is not there to solve our economic problem anymore. It's there to satisfy our desire for, for status or to um, allow us to play out an identity. The book also touches on virtual currencies such as Bitcoin. That's right. When we last spoke, it was something of a media darling, but the currency itself has grown and continued to kind of worm its way into a more mainstream usage. Do you think it will continue doing that in terms of more ATM machines or more vendors that will take it? Well, so <clears throat> my so I don't have a crystal ball, but my view on Bitcoin is that it's, which is what I said before, is that it's provided a, a great example of what you can do with a decentralized payment system. And it's sparked a lot of innovation uh, we can see a lot of other virtual currencies now springing um, using the same principles and um, often the same code base. And also more traditional um, actors in finance and payments are starting to take notice and think, what can we learn from this? But at the same time, Bitcoin itself, and now I stress that this is just speculation, um, but um, I don't, I'm not sure that it has actually um, increased in mainstream usage. So this might be a controversial statement because clearly many online stores that didn't accept Bitcoin when we last spoke now accept it. But I'm not convinced that it's so much more than a sort of publicity move on their part.
because um, almost 10 years ago when Second Life was the media darling, the, a very similar dynamic played out where a lot of companies um, started adapting uh, <clears throat> Second Life and going into Second Life um, and it was sort of um, in media positioned as evidence of Second Life kind of breaking into mainstream. Um, whereas, whereas actually it was um, just their way of getting their share of the media attention. And um, actual Second Life adoption remained flat. And so I understand that obviously Bitcoin and Second Life are completely different technologies, but the uh, media dynamics here seem to be playing out the same way. And if you look at the uh, statistics that are available on the number of transactions, for example, that are taking place uh, on Bitcoin, those have not grown in proportion uh, with the um, growth, for example, of the exchange rate, which, uh, and, and that coupled with my um, sort of uh, informal uh, discussions with people who buy Bitcoin leads me to believe that still the majority of people who who uh, buy into Bitcoin, they do so with the um, the expectations of then later selling out, selling um, it and making a profit. So it's kind of buy and hold speculation that's fueling Bitcoin at the moment rather than uh, expanding use. by Billy Leilonberta and Edward Castronova is available on MIT Press. Thanks for listening.